Thanks to you, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality with Apple Podcasts. Please help us reach more listeners in 2024 by making a year-end gift. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. In your twilight years of your life, are you going to look back and say, boy, I sure had great Instagram photos? Would it not be more meaningful if you had a grandchild's hand to hold on to, to sing hymns with you, and to encourage you, say, Grandma, I will see you again. I can't wait. The land that we're talking about, the land of Israel, God owns it. And anyone who's been on it, biblically or otherwise, has only been a manager or a steward. Jesus clearly believed in the Trinity. He rose from the dead, and until you do, I'm going with Jesus as the best witness to the truth of what is meant in the Christian church by the term Trinity. When we're talking about the, the liturgy, what we're not talking about is a style of worship. Rather, we're talking about a theology of worship. Aerobatic pilots, at least this one, love issues, etc. <laughs> what worldviews stand behind the support for abortion? It's easy to simply dismiss it as people who have no moral compass, but there are philosophies, there are actual systems of thought that rule in the minds and the hearts of those who think that abortion should be legal and accessible anytime, anyplace, for any reason. What are those worldviews, and what does pro-life even mean? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in live on this Tuesday afternoon, the 12th of December. Joining us to talk about the pro-life message, Scott Klusendorf. He's president of Life Training Institute. He's author of a new second edition of his book, The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. Scott, welcome back. Good to be with you as always, Todd. Scott, let's begin with your reaction to a video that was just released by the Biden-Harris campaign regarding an abortion story in Texas getting major news coverage. Here's Biden-Harris campaign manager Julie Chavez-Rodriguez. Last night, a group of judges in Texas told a woman, Kate Cox, that she cannot receive health care that could determine if she lives or dies. And this is the reality of Donald Trump's bans. It's the latest development in a shocking, horrifying, and heartbreaking story where first, Kate was forced to beg a court for health care that would save her life. Then doctors were threatened with a lifetime in jail, sentenced by Donald Trump's first MAGA Republican, Ken Paxton, if they helped her. And now, after the Texas Supreme Court denied her life-saving care, Kate had to leave her home state to seek the health care she urgently needs. This is happening right here in the United States of America. Scott, what's your reaction? Well, there's nothing but propaganda in that piece. For example, they're defining abortion as health care. Let's define what abortion is. Abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. That does not fit the definition of health care. Health care is about healing humans, not killing them. So there's a lot of misuse of language. But secondly, 
This is pure nonsense that women cannot get life-saving treatment, even if it means ending a pregnancy. Often what happens in these cases is that we're given a health situation, and health is defined so broadly it can mean anything, as it did in Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, that it's then presented to the public as, oh, this woman needs a life-saving abortion. And I am unaware of any case in medical science where we have to kill the fetus to save the mother. I do know cases where we must end a pregnancy, but at 20 weeks, we can do an emergency C-section if we need to. There are other options there. Plus, I don't know of one state, and I've looked at them, that has a law in the books that says if a woman needs a life-saving surgery, she can't get it. That's just nonsense. So how do you respond to pro-lifers who, after the overturn of Roe v. Wade, and a few of what people are interpreting as related political defeats, are feeling hesitant about the pro-life message? Well, they're right that we've had a bad track record since Roe was overturned, but make no mistake, overturning Roe was good news. It was a necessary but not sufficient condition for ending abortion in this country. The Supreme Court no longer rules on that issue. In other words, nine justices in robes no longer set abortion policy for the country. That's a win. That's a good thing. But here's the problem we face. For decades, Todd, pro-lifers have thought that if we could just get the Supreme Court to reverse Roe and we could just deal with a hostile media, we'd win this thing. That's not true. The majority of Americans do not hold our worldview on abortion. We have a worldview challenge in front of us, not a marketing challenge. And we have to be prepared to defend our views. And that's why I did a second edition of The Case for Life. I wanted to equip Christians in a post-Roe world to make that case for life on hostile turf. What is that case? Make it in a minute. Okay. Well, the most important thing is to start with a syllogism. And here is the pro-life syllogism or basic formal argument. It is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. That's premise two. Conclusion, therefore, abortion is wrong. It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Abortion does that. Therefore, it's wrong. We defend that with science and philosophy, and we can do that in under a minute. We argue from science that from the earliest stages of development, the unborn are distinct, living, and whole human beings. They're not part of another human being like skin cells on the back of your hand. They are themselves distinct, living, and whole human beings. We argue philosophically, Todd, that there's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that justifies killing you back then. Differences of size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying you could be killed as an embryo, but not now as an adult. So we are in an age now, and a lot of this has happened in the last 25, 30 years, where progressives, they don't care about the science, unless it's convenient for them. They don't care about reason. They don't care about logic, arguments, philosophical or otherwise. What do we do? That's certainly true for some academics. There are some people who say, I don't care if the unborn are human, I'll kill them anyway. People like Peter Singer, Michael Tooley, and others. And I address those thinkers in the book. But here's the thing to remember. That is not where your rank and file fellow citizen is. Your rank and file fellow citizens are basically people who've never looked at the abortion issue. They haven't heard the case for the pro-life view. 
and they're largely ignorant of it. And that's why they believe the lies of Planned Parenthood and the Biden administration. They haven't learned to think critically on this issue, and it's our job to help them do that. Why focus on the unborn? Why is that the heart of the pro-life message and everything else, while it might be good support, without the focus on the unborn, the pro-life message fails? I can't think of any moral issue with more urgency than one that up until the reversal of Roe was intentionally killing an innocent human being one million times over every year in this country. There isn't any issue that comes close to that. That is, you take the number since Roe v. Wade, we're dealing with the Holocaust times 10. What moral issue possibly comes close to that one in terms of the equivalency of the wrong done? It's horrific. And so it's appropriate that Christians give greater emphasis to that issue than other issues that are important but don't involve a million deaths a year through intentional killing. And by the way, not just intentional killing, intentional killing that our government supports. So that is a primacy issue for us as Christians. God takes the shedding of innocent blood very seriously. We see that in Proverbs 6. We see it in Exodus 23 and even Matthew 5.21. This is a preeminent moral issue, and we've got to give primacy to it because God thinks it's very serious to intentionally shed innocent blood. As to the question of what does it mean to be pro-life, there has been, as you call in the book, some friendly fire, where advocates for the unborn have attempted, I think, with good intentions, to expand the definition of pro-life to include the unborn, but to almost to say there's a moral equivalency between does the unborn live or die, and how the unborn lives if they're not killed in abortion. What do you make of that argument, the whole pro-life argument? You're correct, Todd. There are people that do favor protecting the unborn who are saying to us that if we're going to be effective at reaching people with a pro-life message, we have to adopt a whole life ethic, meaning womb to the tomb. We give equal emphasis to all life issues, not just abortion. We have to put equal effort into stopping genocide, equal effort into stopping poverty, equal effort into making sure that there are no oppressed classes of human beings. And if the pro-life movement doesn't give equal effort on all these points, we're going to fail in our mission. And I think that is very wrongheaded. It will bankrupt the pro-life movement. We're not a rich movement. We don't have the dollars that Planned Parenthood has, that academia has, that government has to promote abortion wholesale the way that they can promote it wholesale. We're resisting that with shoestring budgets, very thin, without a lot of wiggle room. And now we're supposed to take on all this other stuff. I mean, that's crazy. As one of the czars pointed out famously, he who fights everywhere fights nowhere. We're being spread way too thin, and we're not going to win if we do that. But I want to raise a philosophical question as well. How does it follow that because you oppose the intentional killing of an innocent human being, you are thereby responsible to fix everything wrong with society? That's nonsense. I mean, imagine somebody saying to a homeless shelter, you don't really care about human beings because if you did, you would take in everyone. And not only that, you'd be open 24-7, 365 days a year. And not only that, you would go help people in other cities, not just your own. 
Nobody would say that to a homeless center in downtown St. Louis, but they say it to pro-life Christians all the time. The idea being that if we don't fix everything, we have no credibility. But here's the thing, Todd, we can call their bluff. I like to look critics in the eye who are hostile toward the pro-life view who say, oh, you just care about being pro-birth. You don't care about human life. And I say, okay, suppose pro-lifers take on every issue you demand we take on. We care about poverty and we devote equal resources to that. We care about stopping war, so we do that. We oppose capital punishment, so we do that. And we use our operational resources to do all the things you demand we do. Will you now join us in opposing abortion? 100% of the time, Todd, the answer is no. Women have a fundamental right to an abortion is the reply we get. Well, if that's true, they need to quit hiding behind all these other issues and argue for an unrestricted right to an abortion with no limits at all. That's what a fundamental right would mean. But they don't. They bring up all these other issues to really disguise their true issue. And what really bothers me, Todd, is some people on our side who ought to know better, they've kind of bought the premise of our critics that we have no credibility if we don't take on every issue under the sun. And that's just not true. As a Christian, I will care about a lot of issues. I should care about sex trafficking. I should care about the poor and poverty. I should care about people who are being oppressed. And that's reflected in my giving as a Christian. But it does not follow the operational objectives of the pro-life movement have to be broad and inclusive as well. It is not wrong for us to focus on protecting the most vulnerable human beings. Let's get to the question at the heart of this, and that is, what is the unborn? We can assert this, but often those who are advocates for abortion act as though what happens in the womb from conception to natural birth is a scientific mystery. What's the truth there? Yeah, they want to make this a theological question. Well, you know, theology can't tell us if we have souls or if we're different from animals. And they make all these claims. We're not making a theological claim when we say the unborn are distinct living and whole human beings. We're making an empirical claim that we evaluate through the science of embryology, not theology. So they want to make this a religious issue, Todd, because what they've done is define religious truth claims as not counting as real knowledge. So if they can reduce our claim to religion in their minds, it won't count as real knowledge. It's just subjective opinion. But in this case, even though I'm prepared to argue that religious truth claims can count as knowledge, in this case, they're making a category error because our argument is scientific, not theological. And what that science says, and every embryology textbook worth its salt in the universe will say this, from the earliest stages of development, from the one cell stage, you are a distinct living and whole human being. That's the science of embryology. And you know, there's a real easy question, Todd, that people can ask if they doubt this. You can ask them this, how can two human parents create offspring that isn't human, but later become so? For the critic of the pro-life view, they're going to have to answer that question. And if they can't, I can dismiss their view as just being a subjective opinion. Scott Klubendorf is our guest. He's president of Life Training Institute. We're talking about the pro-life message, and we'll get to the nature of the unborn next.
We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. Join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 18th through Saturday, January 20th for the 2024 Why for Life Free Conference. Registration is open through December 15th. Learn more at why4life.org. Great events, speakers, and social time. The 2024 Why for Life Free Conference, January 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C., Y4life.org. Defending life from beginning to end. You're listening to Issues Etc. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's Life Ministry cares for pregnant women sharing the love of Christ. Listen to Pastor Ed DeWitt with Redeeming Life Outreach Ministries. One of the first residents we had said to me, Pastor, why do you do this? And I said, just stick with me through this class. And when we're done, you'll understand completely. Many of the women, as they go through the instruction, when we get to that part about baptism, they're like, Pastor, I want that for my baby. I want my baby to be adopted into God's family. God's mission here, lcms.org slash national mission. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Scott Klusendorf is our guest, author of the new second edition of The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. Scott, let's get into the nature of the unborn. Where would you begin? I'd begin by framing it exactly the way you do. Our argument is not only that the unborn are human, but they are human with a particular nature. And that is a rational nature that we know as Christians bears the image of God. And I would make the claim that what sets apart all living things from other living things is that they have a particular nature that determines what they are. Your dog has a canine nature. Your goldfish has a goldfish nature. Your cat has a satanic nature. You as a human being has a human nature. And that human nature came to be when you came to be. And if we ground human rights and human dignity, Todd, in our common human nature, which does not come in degrees like things like self-awareness, viability, or development do, if we ground it in our common human nature, we have a basis for human equality. If we ground it in something like self-awareness, say we take Peter Singer's argument, we say, well, until an entity is self-aware and has an interest in living and can see itself existing over time, it doesn't have a right to life. Okay, well, on that standard, those with more self-awareness have a greater right to life than those with less. And that would mean if you had a cup of coffee an hour ago and your synapses are firing on all cylinders from the caffeine and you're more self-aware than someone else at the moment, you have a greater right to life than they do and human equality can be thrown out the window. The only way to ground human equality is to say that all of us equally share a human nature in virtue of the kind of thing we are. And as Christians, we know that nature bears the image of our maker. And if you ground human equality in that, 
we can explain human dignity, human equality. If we don't, we're going to ground it in traits that come and go and that none of us share equally. And that means human dignity and equality are out the window. If you would take us through, I think it's called the SLED argument with respect to the unborn. We use the SLED acronym as a way to illustrate that the endowment view of human beings is better at explaining human dignity and equality than the performance view, which is the rival view of human anthropology. The performance view says this, Todd, you are not valuable because of what you are. You are only valuable for what you can do functionally, namely your cognitive development. This would be the view, as I explained in the book, of Peter Singer, Michael Tooley, David Boonin, Kate Greasley, Jubilini Minerva, and others that I talk about. But the arrival to that view is the biblical worldview that says we are endowed with value and dignity from our creator. In other words, our rights don't flow from our performance. They flow from our nature as being a member of the human species. And that view of humanity can explain dignity and basic human value better than its rival secular view. And the SLED acronym makes easy work of illustrating this for people. It says that there's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that justifies killing you back then. Differences of size, there's your S. Level of development, there's your L. E is environment and degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. So just to look at that very quickly, size, you were smaller as an embryo, but since when does body size determine value? Men are generally larger than women. We don't think they have more rights than women simply because they're bigger. Or as I like to point out, Shaquille O'Neal, the seven foot two basketball star, is a foot taller than everybody listening right now, but he is not more human and valuable because of it. Body size doesn't give you value. Level of development, sure, you were less developed as an embryo, but here's what pro-lifers need to get in the habit of doing. Instead of accepting the premise that development gives us value by saying, oh, well, look at a fetal development model here. This child in the womb already has brain waves by week 12. Wrong answer. You just bought the premise that development gives value. Challenge it. Ask this question. Why is development value giving in the first place? Or to put it differently, how developed do I have to be not to be intentionally killed? Make your critic do the hard work of defending their assertion rather than you simply assuming it. We don't think, for example, that a two-year-old girl who doesn't have a developed reproductive system is less human and valuable than a 21-year-old who does. I speak to a lot of teenagers, and I don't think for a moment they're going to buy the premise that their parents have a greater right to life just because the teenagers are less developed physically and cognitively. What about environment where you're located? Where you are doesn't justify what you are. For example, we can do fetal surgery now on children in the womb. And what we do, Todd, is many times we remove the child from the mother's uterus, repair the herniated diaphragm or whatever else is going on, and then place the child back in the womb to be born normally at 40 weeks. Does that child go from being a non-human, non-person entity before the surgery to briefly becoming one during the surgery and then go back to being another non-valuable entity until it's born at 40 weeks? I mean, that's absurd. And then finally, degree of dependency. We don't think that just because you depend on another human being, that's a good reason for killing you. Conjoined twins depend on each other's bodily systems, their 
circulatory systems, but we don't think they're less human and valuable and we don't kill them because of that. So if you look at these four differences of size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency, think sled, none of them are good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. Is the pro-life view an imposition of, and you touched upon this briefly a moment ago, is it an imposition of a certain theology or even a state imposition of religion? Well, first of all, when anybody says that the pro-life argument is religious, you should immediately reject the premise. Arguments are either true or false, meaning sound or unsound, valid or invalid. You cannot dismiss an argument by calling it a name. You got to do the hard work of refutation. So the first thing I want to do is point that out to the critic. But pro-life views are no more religious than arguments against discrimination. Can you prove purely from science that we should not discriminate against people of different skin color? And the answer is, of course you can't. Science can tell you what genealogy or what nationality you are or what your skin color pigment is made up of, but science can't tell me how to treat other human beings. You got to do philosophy and ask religiously oriented questions to come to the conclusion that child abuse, racial discrimination are wrong. And it's no more religious to claim that a fetus has a right to life than to say it doesn't or to say that a 10-year-old does. These are all inherently metaphysical questions and both sides of the abortion debate cannot help but ask the larger worldview questions like what makes us valuable in the first place? Where do rights come from? What ought we be doing as human beings? And what are our obligations? These are questions that are inherently religious, and both sides have to answer them. What is wrong with this notion of personhood? Again, often advanced by those who are very well-meaning, and sometimes even by pro-lifers themselves. I don't like to use the term because it concedes to our opponents a premise we should not grant, namely, that there can be such a thing as a human that's not a person. I don't know, Todd, have you ever met a human that's not a person? Don't answer if you have teenagers in the home, I suppose. But outside of that, have you? No, I haven't either. Why should we believe there can be such a thing? That's the first question. But secondly, this whole person, human person dichotomy, this bifurcation here, is used solely so that we can justify setting aside a class of human beings that we want to kill. You've got a class of humans here called persons we can't kill, another class of human beings we define as non-persons arbitrarily so we can justify killing them. This is nothing but a subjective attempt to set aside one class that can be killed from another class that can't. But beyond that, Todd, there's a larger worldview issue idling in the background here, and it is a worldview about the human person known as body-self-dualism. And this is something your listeners need to be aware of because it creeps in not only to the abortion debate, but debates over gay marriage, debates over transgenderism. And briefly, body-self-dualism is the belief that you are not your body in any way that's meaningful. Rather, You are totally you only in your cognitive sense, your aims, your feelings, your desires. That's the real you. Your body tells us nothing about your real identity. And we can see this when we see somebody, for example, say, well, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. I mean, 50 years ago, people would have said, huh, that makes no sense at all. Now it's considered without even questioning. Well, of course that must be true. Why? Because the culture has bought this notion 
that the real person has no link to their body at all. The body is just mere matter in motion. We're free to manipulate any way we want. So if an embryo doesn't yet have a cognitive sense, there's no person there. Thus, abortion doesn't kill anyone because all there is is physical stuff, a body, but there's no person there. And that worldview has been used to justify abortion, justify destructive embryo research, justify killing people at the end of life through doctor-assisted suicide and euthanasia, the idea being that once their cognitive self is no longer intact, there's nothing there. There's no person there. We can kill them because their body doesn't tell us anything about identity. And that's a very destructive worldview. It's also very counterintuitive, Todd. I don't know about you, but I've hugged my mother, and I'm sure you've hugged your mother. But how can you hug desires or aims or feelings? You can't. If any of your listeners are driving right now, they are using their eyes, hopefully, to look out the windshield and not look at their phones. And as they're doing so, their eye is making contact with the environment in front of them. Their eye is physically taking in images, but their mind, their immaterial thoughts are making sense of those images. Well, that fits the biblical view that we are a dynamic union of body and soul. We are not merely body, not merely soul. We're a dynamic union. That's the biblical view. Scott Klusendorf is our guest. He is president of Life Training Institute. We're talking about the pro-life message. How does embryonic stem cell research enter this debate? Listen to the best of the church's music for the Advent season at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the Advent season. LutheranPublicRadio.org. Under a starlit sky in Bethlehem, a divine event unfolded. We read from Luke 2-7, And she gave birth to her firstborn son. As we ponder these words, we're reminded that the Savior was born in the midst of ordinary surroundings, yet it was extraordinary. From all of us at Lutheran Church Extension Fund, may this Advent season fill your life with the extraordinary, even amid the ordinary. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial-A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial-A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now.
your comprehensive source for information, teaching, and truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. At the center of our campus is Kramer Chapel, and there's a reason for that. Issues Etc. guest, Dr. Arthur Just. Because it is the heartbeat of Concordia Theological Seminary. It is where we go to hear the voice of Jesus and frequently be fed with the body and blood of Christ. We sometimes call it our Jerusalem. Kramer Chapel points to the classroom, which we sometimes call Athens. It is there that we do theology, biblical studies, systematic theology, practical theology, history. We love theology here, and we love the study of it, and we love coming together in worship. It's one of the things that gives us great joy, joy in worshiping, joy in studying theology. Concordia Theological Seminary is all about the joy of being in Jesus. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, ctsfw.edu. One child, if you only knew just what your mama was planning to do. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the pro-life message. Scott Klusendorf is our guest. He's author of a new second edition of The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. Scott, how does embryonic stem cell research enter into this debate? Well, it enters in ways that are intellectually dishonest, sadly, because what happens is people come along and say falsely, you know, if we could just get embryonic stem cells, we could cure every disease on the planet right now. Well, that's been proven wrong. In fact, it's been a dismal failure. But the argument 20 years ago in particular was, why not use these embryos? They're going to die anyway. They're left over in clinics. Why not put them to good use? But notice this assumes the unborn aren't human. Suppose we had an orphanage full of toddlers that nobody wanted to adopt, and we didn't have the resources to feed these toddlers, and they would begin dying of disease at some point. Would that be a good explanation to come in and say, well, why don't we just slit their throats right now and harvest their organs to help sick people? No, the argument only works if you assume that these embryos in question are not human. Todd, if you have a good eye and I have a bad eye, I don't have the right to take your good eye to make my bad eye better. That's the logic that's in play here. If the unborn are human, they should not be intentionally killed to treat disease in someone else. I think you might have made the point, but I want you to reiterate it. Even if all the promises of embryonic stem cell research were proved true, and it was the panacea, the miracle cure, nothing would change ethically, would it? No, it wouldn't change a thing. You're right, Todd. And that's because it is always wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being, even if it would benefit those that need a cure. For example, the Tuskegee experiments in the 1930s and 40s were a horrific evil because they involved promising a cure to African-American men who were suffering from syphilis. And we told them, we've got a pill that will cure you here. We gave it to them, but it was a sugar pill. It had nothing to do with cures. And really what researchers wanted, they wanted to study how the disease of syphilis would kill these men. And that was an illegal, immoral thing that was done. And we understand that today, that that's horrific. And the same ethic is in play here with embryonic stem cell research. We should not kill one human being to benefit another human being. 
You've discussed a few of the worldviews that inform both the pro-life and the pro-abortion side. What other worldviews are kind of lurking in the background in this debate? Well, right now, there are three major rivals to the Christian worldview that are lurking in the abortion debate. First of all is naturalism, the belief that the universe came from nothing and was caused by nothing. We are all mere accidents. And on that worldview, really, Todd, nothing has value in a right to life because every living thing is the product of a blind watchmaker. The other worldview that's in play is postmodernism, the belief that even if objective moral truth exists, we can't know it because we're all trapped behind our own sense perceptions or own perspectives. And therefore, no one can say if abortion is right or wrong because that's just a perspective. You can't get at moral truth because you're blocked by your own perceptions. The other newcomer on the block, and this is in the last 10 years, is wokeness or critical theory that basically says there is no creation narrative here. All of ultimate reality is basically involving racial structures that hurt the oppressed and help those who want to oppress them. And our primary ethical duty is to get rid of those racial structures. And abortion is one of those things that is used by women to get free of their oppressors. Women need abortion because they're an oppressed category. And therefore, to deny women that abortion is to function as an oppressor against that woman. And if you don't understand these worldviews that may be in play, especially when you're discussing abortion with friends or colleagues, if you don't understand a little bit about the worldview that's driving their thinking on abortion, you might end up talking right past them. And that's why in the book, I dive into each of these worldviews in great detail and explain how we might respond. Let's talk uh, about uh, something connected to that last worldview, and that is the pro-life movement has very effectively, I think, communicated an ancillary message about how abortion harms women. Sometimes it's merely put as, I regret my abortion. But why can that not displace the focus on the unborn? Well, the problem is it's ultimately subjective. Remember our syllogism. Abortion is wrong because it intentionally kills an innocent human being. That's an objective truth claim. Now, I'm a fan of having women who've had abortions share their stories, share their testimonies of how abortion harmed them. I think that's very helpful, but it should never be our primary argument because the quickest rejoinder to a woman holding a sign that says, I regret my abortion, are five other women holding signs that say, we don't regret ours. And believe me, there are plenty of women who are prepared to say that. So we want to keep this debate on the objective level around the status of the unborn, around our argument that is an objective truth claim, not a subjective one. But again, that doesn't mean, Todd, that once we've presented our objective case against abortion, that it can't be helpful to have somebody on the personal level talking about how abortion impacted them. We can actually do both. We just don't want to lead with the subjective. How do we go to dialogue? How do we learn to ask the right questions when we're having a conversation with someone who's on the other side of this issue from us, wherever they may stand? I like the way you put that. That's the best way to begin is rather than shouting conclusions, we should either establish facts or better yet, ask good questions. You know, our culture is obsessed with equality, Todd. We want racial equality and rightfully so. 
We want marriage equality. You can marry your canary if you want to. We want income equality. We want social equality. But wait a minute, what makes human beings equal in the first place? So one of the questions I love to use to start the question off on the right foot so we keep the main thing the main thing is to ask the person I'm talking to, do you think each and every human being has an equal right to life? Who is going to say no to that question? Almost no one, when you put it to them in that general form. And after they say, I think everyone deserves it, then I simply follow up with, if I can demonstrate to you through the use of the science of embryology that the unborn are also human beings, would you agree that they too have an equal right to life? Well, then the excuses start. Well, they don't have cognitive. They're different from us. And then, of course, I follow up by asking, but are they different from us in ways that justify killing them? And a question that I have found very helpful is to say, if it's wrong to hurt people because of skin color or gender, why is it okay to hurt them because of size, level of development, their environment, or their degree of dependency. And usually jaws drop at this point because people are not prepared to explain why it's not okay to hurt somebody based on skin color, but it is okay to hurt them based on those things I just mentioned a moment ago. Since we're discussing skin color, is there a valid comparison and a powerful one between abortion and chattel slavery, especially our American history of that? There is. We just need to be very shrewd at how we communicate that because so many people think, oh, there you go. You're bringing out the Hitler analogies and the slavery analogies. So what I like to do is quote Lincoln directly. Lincoln, when he would argue against proponents of slavery, would point out that the very arguments being used to justify enslaving the black man worked equally well for whites. And to quote Lincoln almost precisely, he said, Quote, you say man A is white, man B is dark. Oh, it is skin color then. The fair-skinned man having the right to enslave the dark-skinned man. Take care. By that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet with skin fairer than your own. Oh, you say it's not skin color. It's a matter of intellect. The white man, you allege, has superior intellect to the dark man. Take care yet again. By that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet with an intellect superior to yours. Now, I think you can see what Lincoln is doing here. The very arguments being pushed forward to justify enslaving that dark man worked equally well for people that were not enslaved, whites in particular. And I think that the more honest abortion advocates are willing to recognize that their case not only justifies killing the unborn, it would justify killing people outside the womb. Indeed, Peter Singer is very clear about this. The arguments that are put forward to justify abortion work equally well at a minimum to justify killing newborns and maybe even older children who've yet to develop cognitively. That is certainly not what a lot of abortion advocates want to admit. They don't want their argument to go to that place, but it does go to that place. Once you've bought the premise that some arbitrarily selected trait, whether it's a cognitive trait or a physical trait, is what gives you value, and you bank your whole case on that arbitrarily selected trait, which, by the way, nobody ever argues for why it's value-giving in the first place. But once you assert that that trait is what matters, the problem is, obviously, even after birth, the development of that trait continues. There will always be people with more or less of that trait, and that trait can come and go in the course of a single person's lifetime. 
which means personhood and value become very fluid. They can fluctuate based on where you are in life, what your handicaps happen to be, where your state of mind happens to be, what's happening with your physical body. That's not a very secure foundation for human rights. I like ours better. All humans have value because they equally have a human nature that bears the image of their maker. We're talking with Scott Klusendorf, the subject, the pro-life message. He's president of Life Training Institute. We'll talk about some major thinkers in the abortion movement next. Thanks to you, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality with Apple Podcasts. Please help us reach more listeners in 2024 by making a year-end gift. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. Thanks for listening. And thanks for your support. When Christ came to earth, he did not come as a fully formed man. Rather, he took on flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He became a lowly embryo and thereby, in this act, made every child a gracious gift of God. No asterisks, no footnotes. To learn more about the blessing of children, pick up the December issue of The Lutheran Witness. cph.org slash witness or our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Providing artillery support for the church militant on the front lines, you're listening to Issues Etc. Husband, wife, daughter, son, grandchildren, godchildren, pastor, the kids at church, basically everyone of your Christian loved ones is catered for at Ad Crucem. We are the place to go for all your Christmas purchases. Stock up on our amazing Christmas cards, Christmons, Christmas ornaments, unique Christian jewellery, springly cookie moulds, gifts, and much more. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Memoria Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Scott Klusendorf is our guest. We're talking about the pro-life message. He's president of Life Training Institute. Folks, you can help us defend life from beginning to end by making a year-end donation to Issues Etc. For a year-end contribution of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, Answering Arguments Against Christianity, and a new recording of 15 Christmas and Epiphany Season Hymns. You can make a secure online gift at issuesetc.org. You can also donate by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support of the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. at the end of 2023. Scott, if you could, 
Would you summarize some of the new content in the case for life, the major thinkers on the abortion side? Yeah, I will. In fact, those that buy the book will notice right away it's over twice as thick as the former copy of the book. And that's because not because I added larger print and thicker paper, but we added a lot of new sections, including a survey of who the major academic thinkers are on the other side. We don't take a deep, deep dive into them, but I give readers enough of an overview of what each of these thinkers argue and how we might respond. So when you think about the academic thinkers, it helps to simplify your approach by dividing them into two camps. Camp number one is what I call the identity camp. They're the people that say there was no you there when you were in the womb or you were a newborn, that until you had a cognitive sense of self, there was no person there at all. There was a body, but no person, no entity. So that would be people like Peter Singer, Michael Tooley, Jubilini Minerva, who wrote the piece on afterbirth abortion. Those would all be thinkers who fit within that idea, what we call the mental continuity theory, the idea that there's no you there until you have mental continuity. On the other side is, is the group that concedes that you were there, but you don't have the same right to life then as you do now. And that would be somebody like David Boonin. Boonin argues you're identical to the embryo you once were. That was you back then. You did exist back then. But even though you existed back then, you don't have the same right to life then as you do now, and you don't get a right to life until you have organized cortical brain function. That's his standard that he's invented. So if you divide these academics into those two camps, it's easier to make sense of their argument. So if you look at the first camp that buys the mental continuity view, it's easy to point out that their view is going to end up in savage inequality because there will always be humans that have more or less of the trait they pick out, who are more or less sentient, more or less self-aware, more or less able to see themselves existing over time. And so you can point out their view doesn't account for human equality. You can also point out that it would justify intentionally killing people who had less of those qualities to aid and help those who have more of them if they might need organs for transplant, for example. So you end up with some pretty savage stuff once you buy into that view. David Boonin's view, which says you don't have a right to life until you have desires, even though you're identical to your former embryonic self, is problematic because I can think of a lot of people that have a right to life who don't have a desire to go on living, for example. A slave could be indoctrinated not to desire his freedom and maybe not even to live. Does that mean he can be deprived of it? No, he has a right to life in virtue of his humanity, being a particular kind of being that's grounded in his nature that he has a right to life. I can also think of people who, let's say we have an enterprising surgeon who alters the brain of a developing fetus so it doesn't desire anything, and then at age five, the child is killed so that his body organs can be used to treat disease in others. Was that child wronged even if at the time he was killed at age five, he didn't desire to go on living because he had had a surgery to remove that part of the brain? I think we would all agree he's still been wronged even if he didn't desire to go on living. And these are the problems that ensue, Todd, with all these performance views of human value. Let's just deal with a couple objections, and some of them are ironic in the extreme, given the advent of chemical abortion, which is the new back alley abortion. It's just the back room abortion. The room has to be, might be the woman's bathroom. 
women will die from illegal abortions if abortion is made illegal. Well, of course, pro-lifers want to show empathy for any woman who dies from an abortion. That, that's a given. But here's the question. Notice what the argument assumes about the unborn. How does it follow that because making abortion illegal and making it tougher for one human to intentionally kill another completely innocent human being, that the state is somehow wrong to protect the innocent? We don't legalize theft or bank robbery to make it safer for those who want to do those things. No, we protect innocent human beings, and that's how we marshal the law to do it. So it isn't wrong to say, if the unborn are human, it isn't wrong to say we're going to make it tougher to have an abortion, and we're going to have consequences if you do, if in fact the unborn are human beings. In fact, even pro-abortion advocate Marianne Warren points this out. She says murder is wrong regardless of the consequences of prohibiting it. So in her mind, if the unborn are persons with a right to life, of course she argues they're not, but she points out that the problem with the back alley argument is it assumes the unborn aren't human. I mean, it only works if you assume that the child being killed in the womb is not one of us. Otherwise, you're saying that because some people get harmed attempting to intentionally kill other innocent human beings, we ought to make it safe and legal for them to do it. But that's a silly argument. And then I'd add one more thing. Factually, it's not true, Todd, that thousands of women died every year from illegal abortions prior to Roe v. Wade. And I don't need pro-life sources to prove that. I'll cite just a couple of pro-abortion sources to make that point. Dr. Mary Calderon, Planned Parenthood's own medical director for many years during the 1960s, when allegedly all these women were dying from illegal abortions, she said the death rate from illegal abortion was so low, it wasn't even worth commenting on. And the reason why it was so low is the widespread introduction of penicillin had made all surgical procedures safer. People were no longer dying from post-op infections. And secondly, she said, most illegal abortions that were done were not done by guys with rusty coat hangers in the back alley. They were done by physicians in good standing in their community who simply skirted the law. So that's a pro-abortion source. I'll give you one more. Dr. Christopher Teets, Planned Parenthood's own statistician during that same time, called the claim of five to 10,000 deaths a year from illegal abortion, quote, unmitigated nonsense, unquote. And that was posted in the New York Times. I've got the article right here with me. That's not a pro-life source. That's a pro-abortion source. What about uh, the hard case objection, rape, incest, life of the mother? Well, again, of course we should sympathize and empathize with any woman who's been sexually assaulted. That's a terrible crime. We do need to ask a question, though. What does the rape objection actually prove? And secondly, what does it assume about the unborn? Let's take the first question. What does it actually prove? Suppose we grant that abortion is okay in cases of rape. Would that justify all other abortions? Of course not. It would only justify abortion in cases of rape, which means it's really not helpful to the pro-abortionist case because he wants abortion to be legal for any reason or no reason, and there'd be no restrictions on it. So appealing to rape only would forbid abortions due to rape. It would not allow all abortions. It would only allow it in cases of rape. So it's not going to help their cause. But the second issue, what does it assume about the unborn? Well, it assumes the unborn aren't human. Imagine I have a two-year-old in front of me, and his father was a rapist. 
And the mother says, you know, in order to feel better and not be reminded of what I went through, I'd like to eliminate my emotional pain by eliminating my toddler. Would anybody with a functioning conscious go for that? Of course not, because they would recognize that child is a human being. Well, only by assuming the unborn aren't human can you justify intentionally killing them to make somebody else feel better. In what other case does hardship justify homicide? That's the real issue here. Finally, would you respond to someone who says, look, I'm pro-life, but I'm not as articulate or as smart as you are, and I'm afraid to speak publicly about the abortion issue? One of the key questions all pro-lifers need to grapple with right now is this. Are any of the reasons I might give for not speaking up worth the price of children's lives that might have been saved had I been more courageous? And we have to ask ourselves a gut check question along those lines. Do we care more about our own security and what people might think of us than we do speaking God's truth, even though it's not popular? God told the prophet Jeremiah Todd to stand in the city square and testify against child sacrifice. And then God gave him this disturbing news. No one is going to listen to you. Now, our job description is not anywhere near that dire, but yet Jeremiah still had an obligation to obey God and proclaim the truth, and we do too. And that's why I wrote this book, the second edition of The Case for Life, and added more material to help give pro-lifers rank and file, even if they're new to the issue, the tools they need to engage at the idea level to help convince friends. And this idea that people have already made their minds up on abortion, that's a bunch of hooey. People can be persuaded. We see it happen all the time. I continue to contend that the biggest problem we face as a movement is not that people have heard our arguments and rejected them. It's that they've never heard a persuasive pro-life case or never taken the time to consider one. So that's where we as believers need to join the fight to challenge the worldview assumptions that make abortion so plausible to so many of our fellow citizens. Folks, I was extremely honored when Scott asked me to endorse the second edition of his book. Here's what I wrote. With the United States Supreme Court's Dobbs ruling, we need Scott Klusendorf's resource more than ever. He answers the question, who are the unborn with clear-minded thinking and carefully crafted arguments? Pro-life people and lawmakers alike must come to the street corner or the statehouse equipped to speak in defense of their unborn brothers and sisters. Klusendorf keeps the reader's eye and heart fixed on the center of the pro-life position, the child in the womb. You can purchase The Case for Life at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Scott Klusendorf is a president of Life Training Institute and author of the new book, the second edition of Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. Scott, thank you very much. Todd, always great to be with you. Thank you. Wednesday on Issues Etc., we'll discuss Christian decision-making and the end of life with Pastor Dennis McFadden. We'll have Dr. Scott Stegemeyer respond to the argument that sex before marriage between consenting people doesn't hurt anybody, and it's media coverage of religion with journalist Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. 
Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.